Hey, folks, you're listening to the Wait What If podcast. I'm very, very excited you're here. I'm very excited. You have no idea. I'm so happy that you are checking out my program because I work on this. I, I put it together. I, I, I spit wisdom. I wax philosophically for the world to grow. <laughs> Tonight, Chris Denson. He's an American innovation expert, marketer, and comedian. He's the host of the Innovation Crush podcast and runs an innovations team at Omnicon. Om- Sorry, Chris. <laughs> I've done like two takes of this, and I'm sticking with this one. Omnicom, Omnicom Group. Man, that's your fault. I think you say that during the podcast. That's your fault. Um, so Chris came on. We had a, some cool discussions. We talked about... Gosh, martial arts, stand-up comedy, writing, um, innovation, technology, millennials, and I don't know. We had a we had a good talk. Uh, Chris is a great guest. Check out his uh, podcast again. It's Innovation Crush. And without further ado, Chris Denson. You're listening to the Wait What If podcast. let's start here uh and mentioning that chris was an engineer but started his career in comedy he actually had a uh unlikely beginning to his comedy career i was a 17 year old kid who Mm -hmm. was away from home for the first time going to college okay and uh i was like i I always had a like it's just a quiet obsession with comedy in general like all the sitcoms, stand-up, I watched a ton of. Um, and, you know, Cedric the Entertainer was coming to town. And they were like, hey, we're looking for a couple of opening acts to open for Cedric. And I'm like, hmm, maybe now's my chance. So unlike you, I don't know if you did this or not, but I was so nervous beforehand that I like I just spent a lot of time writing material. I did a few jokes, like, just for the audition. And then once I got the call, I said, yes, we want you to do it. I was like, uh oh. <laughs> so, as opposed to winging it and like, oh, I'm the, I'm a funny guy. Yeah. I, uh, I like, I just maybe overly prepared. I mean, I did, I did okay, but definitely was like writing stuff, recording it into a little tape recorder, yeah. letting friends listen to it, going to do open mics and so on and so forth. So, um, and luckily, the first time was not like a horrible time. There were definitely horrible times like after, <laughs> after that. Yeah. And, and, uh, and there, there continue to be, but, um, but you know, it was just kind of like a good foundational groundwork for, for that kind of thing. Sure. And it worked out well for you cause you ended up on, uh, uh, USA, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. I won a few, uh, comedy competitions. Um, at one point, uh, I forget what the name of the tour was, but the prize was we got to be, we got flown to New York to perform at, uh, Radio City Music Hall and, um, uh, be on Gilbert Gottfried's Up All Night. Okay. So, yeah. Um, so that was that was actually pretty cool. And so just yeah, just kind of kept at it. Um, you know, so I had a, a television appearance, appearance, uh, and then kind of like just made a shift from from stand up like purely to more comedy writing in general. It's writing. So the difference for me with stand up was a couple of things. One was, uh, and to this day, I'm not really a big fan of repetition. Like I watch a movie or I watch a stand up special like multiple times, mm-hmm. but to do the same material over and over again, like night after night, show after show, and then go on the road and kind of still do the, the sort of, even if you have a good 45, 60 minutes is still sort of like, Oh, I got to deliver this again. 
And for me, writing was like, it was just so free. Yeah. It was you, it's one and done. I mean, writing is rewriting. There's definitely a process to it where you're like, you know, once it goes from your mind to a piece of paper, then you're like, oh, that doesn't make sense. Then you change that. Then it goes from the paper to a producer or an actor who's actually delivering the, the content. Uh, then you're like, okay, that didn't work. And then you rewrite it again. And so there's just this, this constant flow of change, but it's, you can easily move on to the next funny idea. And I think the way my mind thinks is really like in a, a lot of extrapolation. Like I'll start with a concept and then it's like, and then we can do this and then this happens. And then the, the person that like, whatever the, the sort of developmental um, path it takes, it's, it's a little bit more free for me. Mm -hmm. And yes, it's, it's, and it's also the ridicule is, is still the same. Like if you, (laughs) if you fail on stage, you know, I think a comedy writing room is definitely like, they'll let you have it. Right. You know, it's like if you, if you come whack, uh, people will, they'll have a good time letting you know that it doesn't, (laughs) it doesn't work. Chris gives us his ideas on what drives the creative mind and what his creative process entails. I mean, I have, you know, like like yourself, like hundreds of ideas floating around and I have like bits and pieces of concepts here and there and sometimes I'll get reminded of them, sometimes I'll forget, sometimes I'll write bits and pieces down like just in notes or on a, in a notebook. But once I actually sit down and go like, all right, I'm going to focus on this particular concept, like is such a free flowing process. And I can be in a horrible mood. It can be early in the morning. I don't do well late at night. I will say that, but um, I'll get up at like four o'clock, you know, sometimes and just to like get something out of my head. And, and I think the free flowing process is, is like, you're not really like whatever framework you start with, you just start filling it. It's almost like an abstract painting, right? Where you, you start in one direction and then something else happens. I have a friend who's a really amazing artist and uh, he drew this amazing painting and his like eight, or maybe I think she was six at the time, um, got a hold of it <laughs> and like oh. added to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's, part, but it's part of the story, right? It's just part of the whole like genesis and, and flow of it. Like he found a way to make it work yes i'm said it at, at first but just like that idea of being in flow is pretty um it's pretty intense but it's you know it's kind of like you said there's a bunch of different bits and pieces or separate ideas kind of floating around and once you actually sit down to concentrate on one you're like you, you may even surprise yourself at least i find that sometimes. sure sure i find it it keeps me busy and I'll, I'll explain why it's it's because so if I come up with an idea, nothing irritates me more than people that have ideas and they tell you about their ideas, but they never get anything done. They don't do anything. And oh, yeah. when I was younger, I made a, a point to not be one of those people. The problem with that is whenever I get an idea and I want to share it, I it has to be something I'm going to do. So, you know, like with my wife, I'm constantly saying, hey, do you know what? I want to do this project. And she's like, oh, my God, another project. <laughs> you know, <laughs> or, I want to do this. I want to work on this. I want to get. And and I like again, I don't like to not do it. This podcast, perfect example. Four years ago, I'm like, do you know what? I want to do a podcast. And now it's if if it's time to do a show, I got to do a show. I'm not going to not do it. Right. Um, but it can it can get <laughs> it can get tiring. But you know what? What's the what's the alternative? Uh, go and watch TV and sit and and just yeah. you know not exist so so well, i've also i've also adopted this philosophy where it's you know done is better than perfect 
right? And right. I have a lot of one sheets completed so that I could at least, if there's an idea, there's there's one thing I wrote up maybe a year and a half ago mm-hmm. and an opportunity just came for it. Because I was like, it was in my head. It was a strong enough thing that I like. I always look for what I call a goosebump moment. Because I think out of all those ideas that are kind of floating around in your head or in your heart, it's like there's only a, a handful of those that are actually like, the OMG, the things that give you goosebumps that kind of, you know, get you excited enough to take a step. Right. Is, is it the right step? Who knows? Right. But getting something formal together, even if it's just a one page document um, or, you know, a mock up or if you're, if, you know, if you're in a startup ecosystem, like some form of MVP or, you know, this is how it could work, like whatever the piece of however you need to communicate that idea. Mm-hmm. And. I don't think it needs to, I think you have to give yourself some wiggle room to let it evolve on its own. And so this, this thing that I was working on like a year and a half ago with some, a uh, couple of partners are like, I, I was the one who made the call to this company. Was like, Hey, maybe if we partnered together to do X, Y, and Z, um, they were, and they, they liked it enough. And so I kind of put myself in a position sometimes deliberately where I can't turn back, right? Like once you got your equipment and once you started that first show, you're like, well, I, I got to keep going now. Right. Right. <laughs> right. So, um, and it's not, it's never done. It's never like, okay, this is exactly the way I want it. And so, so at least in that early developmental part sure. of the, the development process. Chris's creativity led him to develop his unique brainchild, Innovation Crush. It's not just a successful podcast, um, but a standalone philosophy. Yeah, so that is my brainchild. You know, I was I was actually hosting a pure comedy show, like almost like morning radio kind of banter. Okay, uh, with a friend of mine, and then um, there was a guy who went to go work for uh, that I knew who went to go work for Levity Entertainment Group, um, which is they managed a ton of comedic talent. They had just started a podcast network to help promote their comedic talent, which ranged from Jeff Dunham to Tommy Chong to you know uh, a number of different individuals. So. Um, we, they were like, hey, we've been we've done really well with comedy. We're starting to think about testing other formats. And what would you think about a show about marketing? Which is kind of like uh, through evolution, kind of not kind of where my career headed. And I, and I go, well, once you do two shows about marketing, I think you've kind of talked about everything you can talk about. Right, right. But, uh, but for me, I was I said. If you think of something that's like, where do smart marketers go for really good inspiration and cultural insight and to really good examples of people who are doing cool stuff that they can pull from or, you know, at least learn from. And for me, that's Fast Company. And, you know, to this day, this is, you know, four and a half years later, I still say the show is a cross between Fast Company and The Daily Show. So I was like, well, if I do a show, (laughs) I want I want there to be some entertainment value Um, and not just like an NPR tune in for today's politics. But if you spoon feed me a message while I'm having a good time listening, like it's a double whammy. Yeah. So that was, that's the, what I set out to do. I don't know if I always get there, but, um, (laughs) but, but at least the attempts are made. Right. Right. In case Chris wasn't busy enough, he also wrote a book called crushing the box, 10 essential rules for breaking essential rules. No, so yeah, we just launched a book a, a couple of months ago, um, which hit number one on Amazon, and that was kind of rooted in the show. 
Um, so a lot of anecdotes to organize it into 10 principles for making innovation happen, both from a tactical standpoint, as well as like a little bit of personal development, like the grit it takes, like you talked about the difficulties of stand up. I think it's the same thing for mm -hmm. an innovator who has an idea and, is, you know, is up on a stage by himself pitching his heart out and trying to make you think that his concepts or her concepts are the, the best ever. And you should give money and attention and time and all that stuff to it. Um, and then, um, yeah, so kind of just got the, the itch to put the book together. So each principle is is kind of rooted in an anecdote from the show, um, whether maybe a guest story or something like that. And then I kind of add in my own experience as far as whether a concept like empathy, which is sort of the ethos of chapter one. It's a lot more difficult than it sounds. Sure. But it's also, you know, and, and if you have your wits about you, you can have a good time despite that. Could this business model have existed 20 years ago? Um, I think it's always existed in some way, shape or form. I think, you know, I, I think the rate at which we innovate and who's doing it, it's, it's not you know, safeguarded by a select few, mm -hmm. you know, because of what the internet has allowed us to do and what iPhones or Samsung galaxies have allowed us to do or just uh, and discover and be inspired by and want to create. I mean, you look at the rate of startup, you know, funding and start literally starting the, the companies. It's a lot more accelerated than mm -hmm. it was previously. Sure. Um, and yeah, so I don't know if it would have I mean, look, I, I can tell you a few years ago, like when I left a company called Machinima and started just kind of like doing a little bit of a roadshow of myself and like meeting with companies and just saying, here, here's, and I was believing in this sort of this idea of companies need an innovation practice, right? Mm -hmm. And every, and this is also in the book. It's like every most of the people I met with was like, oh, so you're a creative director. They're like, no, no, yes, but no, <laughs> right? Oh, you're so you're the tech guy. Yeah, but no, like it's 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 so much it's it's just a different perspective on what it means. So like the definition kind of varies, and even to this day, it's still vague for some people. Right. right? Um, but so you know, as a pure business model in, in and of itself, probably not. But as a practice, it's I feel like it's always been around. We discuss the marriage of creativity and technology and how it has created a boom in creative entrepreneurship. I kind of will turn to one of my guests, Orlando Jones, who's a comedic actor and also just oh, yeah. a, an amazing entrepreneur um, and uh, just in tech and tools and he's like a, such a huge geek. But he said something that that you you almost made me reframe it, which was, you know, he said, we all started off as fans of something. We all saw something and we said, I want to do that. And so, you know, 20 years ago, right, it's like, oh, I see stand-up comedy. I want to do that, right? Now, because of what the internet is, you discover things every single day that you're like, that is cool. I want right. to find a way to do. So there's, a, I mean, there's even been studies about millennials. There's a guy I interviewed named uh, Peter Vood, who's sort of like a millennial whisperer. Um, so people go to him for their expertise on the generation and so on and so forth. And he's uh, like one of the biggest hurdles for the generation is, um, is paralyzation by choice, right? There's so many things you are interested in and want to do and want to like touch on. 
that you, you don't make any decisions, right? Or you right. delay or um, or you or the you know the the other darker side of it is like you assume you're an expert in something because you did read a couple of articles and you you know oh I'm a social media expert because I have a Twitter account and I read three articles right like because uh, the information's there and the the air of feeling informed and knowledgeable is different but it's also you know different than being experienced oh yeah so so you know and I, I think we are under what do you call it? I, I guess undervaluing the idea of experience everything's a shiny object mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um so it's it's a it's an interesting mix of possibility and impossibility you couple that with being a young adult that knows everything anyways and uh, yeah exactly yeah i mean this... i didn't have the stuff and i and i thought i knew what i was doing oh sure right? let alone if you know i matter of fact i have a, I have a 13 year old daughter yeah. and um i'm i have to be careful about telling her to google stuff Right. Like if she asked me a question, I have to be careful. of. And even my son, I have a five year old, but he can't read yet. So, (laughs) but it's like, (laughs) but it's like if the more I tell her to go Google something, it's like, oh, I'll just go and find out and inform myself. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, As opposed to kind of evolution through dialogue with Mm -hmm. people. And I think, I mean, I'm sure you know this as a host. It's like you get a lot out of these people you talk to. Right. Mm -hmm. Let alone if what you've read online or discovered in a magazine or whatever you saw on Twitter or Instagram. It's like these conversations are like enlightening. And so I think it's just being careful that you, you know, we don't over rely on this false sense of expertise because of you can, every piece of information is at your fingertips. We changed gears here a bit to discuss the age of the millennial and how they evolved from being tech-obsessed tweens to the driving force in markets, politics, and entertainment, and how their culture is slowly becoming our culture. We go from Chicago's musician Young Chop to Colonel Sanders. Kind of go down a rabbit hole here. Let's be real. Millennials are finally sort of of age, right? So we, we do. I think we are starting. I think there's millennials and then there's millennial-minded. You know, I think um, you know, I kind of refer to myself as millennial-minded. Like I do participate and have the sort of same sort of thing. But I think growing up just changes things. So you know, a lot of times our brands were like, millennials do this. Millennials don't. They don't want to own cars and they don't want to own homes. It, like everything's a shared economy. And I was like, until you get married and have a family. Right. Then, then right. you're going to need your own vehicle and you're going to want to be in a place where you have to be at a, your kid has to be at a school. And, you know, there I think there's life stages. And I think there's I think we have a lot more in common life stage wise mm-hmm. than we acknowledge. So, you know, I like uh, I like that idea of millennial minded. Um, basically, you're saying that you can think and, and understand where they're coming from. Versus and exhibit some of the, yeah, and even exhibit some of the same behaviors, right? You know, I think there's, I think some of the things that we talk about, like I live in a coastal city, like in, in LA, right? And so, you know, mm-hmm. when we talk to like LA and New York, talk to each other about, when we talk to ourselves even about VR and augmented reality, like all these things, and the future is taking over. I mean, I still know people who haven't heard of Uber or haven't used it, or okay. you know, I, I spoke on a uh, spoke about. Uh, I spoke about innovation at a, at a conference recently and it was in Austin, Texas, and it was for the Americans for the arts. So you had like mom and pop 
arts and dance institutions, but you also had like museums and like really high end institutions. And I asked the audience, which is about 1200 people. I said, how many people here have done a VR experience? Three people raised their hands. Wow. And this was, this was November, 2016. Mm -hmm. So, you know, not too long, not too long ago, but think about at least in my world, how often the acronyms VR and AR come up. Sure. It's like, so I think we forget about this, these common denominators, right? The middle of America or even other parts of the world where, you know, they're not doing the things that we assume that they are, at least to the extent. Yeah. I I haven't really thought of it that way. Um, I just look at it is, or as having to function in this new world. Uh, I, that's how I got my dad to to be into you know iPads and FaceTime and all that. I said, look at your your seventy. You can you know not FaceTime with your grandkids because they still live up in New Hampshire and and you know interact in this world, or you can just you know let it happen. Just learn about it. Be excited about it. And and now I mean. Now he does everything. I mean, I'm getting tweets from my. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, Whoops, too uh, my, far. <laughs> see, my and, my, and then uh, look, you've got the generational gap, right? I think if you're, a, I won't say an early adapter in the case of like our parents, but mm-hmm. I will say like an easy adapter, um, which that's, that should be a study done on uh, with the AARP. Sure. Call yeah. the AARP now. Um, but no, it's uh, my mom is the complete opposite. Like she, she, I posted a, like a video of my daughter doing like a karate. This is, you know, she was, must've been like six at the time, um, doing, you know, martial arts belt test. And I posted it on YouTube and I sent it, I sent my mom the link and about, uh, I don't know, three weeks later, she sent me an email back and said, Hey, hi, son. I'm having trouble downloading the YouTube. And I, was, <laughs> I was like, you just clicked on, you just clicked the link. Yeah. That's all you have to do. It's literally one motion. Um, and it, like she didn't get it. And then I got her a Kindle. I don't know why I did that. Like a few years later. And she just yesterday I was talking to her and she was like, oh, I got to take the Kindle and this iPad I got to the Apple store. And I was like, well, they're not going to do anything yeah. with the Kindle. At yeah. The <laughs> That's. Um, I wonder if there's a malleability in the brain that kind of solidifies after the age of fifty or sixty. That just says, "No, I'm not." You know, this is the world that I have oh. been formed in, and I I can't go back. Like, go to an old person's house. Like, see who has a rotary phone or a flip phone. Yeah. Or I and I'm even getting there. Like, I'm not, there's some things I'm just like, nah, I'm not doing that. Like, I understand it and I appreciate it. But mm. like Snapchat, for instance. Right? Yeah, yeah. Account, I've, I've, I'm not doing that. Once. That's not. Yeah. I, I, right. I don't even know if I have an account. I might. If there's a wait, what if account? I have no idea. But it, I've never posted to it. Because <laughs> exactly. Who? Uh, someone. There was a comic we saw this weekend. Uh, have you ever been down to Charlie Goodnights in North Carolina? Uh, no, it's, I it's great, great little club. But uh, he was saying something. But he goes, he's like, I don't even know what the kids are doing nowadays. Disappearing dick pics or something like that. And I, yeah. I realized he was exactly. talking about uh, Snapchat. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Oh, let alone you got stuff like friends or Instagram. You know, just like the social construct of creating fake accounts so your parents don't know what you're really up to. Um, there's ones called House Party. I mean, once you start getting to like Gen Z behavior, you're like, wait, what? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and I mean, uh, 
was it? I forget the name of it. It's you. It's not like it's like YouTube, but it's like me too, something like that. But um, let's see, I'm old. Uh, but you find you start to find like, look, there's millions of people using these platforms, mm-hmm. and you haven't even heard of it, let alone like signed up and with an account you don't use. Sure. So it takes work um, too, and it took me. Yeah. I got like five thousand Twitter followers. You know how long it took me to get that. Worked my ass exactly. off. I don't want to start from scratch. <laughs> exactly. A follower a month. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, I think, too, technology has a way of, of fitting like a sock. Like, it, it also, it's very easy to just kind of slide into it. You know, it's not like you're, you're getting a DOS prompt, you know, 40 years ago and, and having right. to, to put your own code in or anything. They make it very user-friendly. User and I think that's important. Um, for a couple of reasons. I think when I was emailing you, I told you about how as a white guy from New Hampshire, I shouldn't know who young chop is, uh, out of Chicago. And, yeah. and because these kids, so he's, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's a, um, a producer okay. and yeah. he's young. Well, now he's probably 25, 26, but uh, you know, at one point he was 16, 17 and he was creating music out of his bedroom, you know, and it was keeping him out of trouble. And he had the technology to, um, to put this music out there either on YouTube or whatever platform that ended up getting a massive, massive following. And that following grew not because some guy said, hey, you know, um, uh, Mr. Young Chop, if we do uh, this beat with this, we can, you know, generate revenue. <laughs> through the-. No, it was because right. this is his music and this is what he does. And it resonated with a group of people. And then because technology is in such a way that here I am uh, in in at the time. I don't know. I, I forget when that came out. If for the listeners, it's um, if you watch Noisy, which is a uh, subdivision of Vice News, uh, they have a um, uh, like a seven or eight part series on. Atlanta, and then one on uh, uh, Chicago, which is called Chirac. So if you look up Noisy Chirac or Noisy Atlanta, I mm-hmm. was I was glued to it. I was so fascinated because it it took me out of my you know I'm walking down the street, someone comes by, blasting some music out of their window, and I don't know what that music is, and I don't care to know what it is. To oh oh, this is what that music is. This is what they're trying to say. This is the life that these kids have. And yeah. it, it just, it completely opened my world. And it did so in a way that would not have been able to be done uh, except for the, the advancements in technology and the ability, the yeah. accessibility. I mean, I like, I like to think that, you know, the, the struggle has always remained the same, right? It's, it's just the means by which you can be discovered and get your ideas, uh, creative or business or otherwise, out to the world. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I talk about, you know, uh, Colonel Sanders, who was in his 60s when he started shopping his chicken recipe. And he was literally going like door to door, like, taste my chicken. Oh, really? <laughs> you know, would now get you arrested. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah right. uh, just the, the phrase alone. Um, yeah. <laughs> or, you know, a guest of mine who's uh, this guy named Hakeem Olusei, who's the chief science officer for the Discovery Channel. You mentioned like a kid wanting to get out of trouble. I think he's maybe got, he maybe got us by a couple of years in age. But, um, you know, he grew up in like bad neighborhoods and, you know, he was a nerd at heart, just like Young Chop was a music file, you know, yeah. at that the time and he's like i would watch specials on tv about albert einstein and he's like i was also watching fat albert so yeah, yeah. you've got this you, you've got the same desire to do something 
b- bigger, better, different, stay out of trouble, whatever the the catalyst is, um, or you know, and then you've got the the memes that have evolved by which to do that. Um, you know, I love like the fact that I get to talk to all these amazing people and also like put it into practice. There was a guy that I interviewed who also uh, wrote a book on piracy. Mm-hmm. And just in one example, he just talks about like in the music business alone, you know, first Warner Brothers introducing the phonograph and then, you know, and then um, there were bands who were afraid to have their records recorded because they thought that they would be less relevant because the performing was their that's how they made money. So you go from night to night to venue to venue and that's how you make money. If Oh, my gosh, if somebody just has it recorded, they can play it on their own. They won't need us. Yeah. Right. Um, but look what recording did for, you know, for the music industry and for musicians. So there's always like this threshold of fear and change. I'm going, I know I'm going off on a complete tangent here. No, no, no. It's, uh, it's interesting. But I think as far as, you know, uh, whether it's a young chop or, you know, Benny Goodman, like the, the desire was there at a point in time. And, you know, the work, the work ethic that it takes is still instilled. It's just the, the work is just different. Sure. So. Chris gives us his opinion on the future of innovation and creativity and where he thinks we're going as a society in the next few decades. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, I, I've had this phrase and just sort of in the back of my head. I don't think I've ever even said it out loud, but it's like, you know, I wonder if one day we'll say, remember the iPhone? You know, like whatever that means of communication is at that point, like whatever, you know, we think the iPhone is impossible, right? The, or as was Alexander Graham Bell's invention. Yeah. yeah. Like, what? You can do what? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think there's a, there's always a pleasant surprise. I think, if anything, it's just I like to make sure there's always a focus on the humanity of it all. Mm-hmm. Right. Like what? Why are we creating this? You know, um, and so I, I, as opposed to what can we do? And I think we've hopefully from an inventor standpoint, we've learned a lot about the downside, right? I mean, you talk about technology and social media, it's also been linked to depression and suicides and bullying and, you know, all sorts of, or just um, bad body posture or exposure to radiation or suicides at the iPhone factory. Like it's, there's all sorts of things. So it's like, I, I would hope that we take a little bit more of a mindful approach to the things that we invent. And so that we can have a list of boxes to check. Like, is it, you know, does it actually help us? Um, Cause I think we assumed a lot of things like, Oh, this is going to be great. And it has been amazing in so many different ways, but it's also like been our look. I mean, look at the election, you know, it's, just, yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, um, as awesome as Facebook is and keeping in touch with people and keeping up with family and remembering people's birthdays and set, like being a person and a human being, it's also like, oh, our, you know, it's, it, we became susceptible to a lot of bad things. How is it as a, uh, a father of a teenager? My daughter's only three, so I got, uh, who knows what I'm going to have to deal with it when she turns Lock her 13. up, man. Just lock her I up. Know. Put her I in, know, put her right? But have you ever seen the movie Powder? Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I'm thinking like, you know, back in the 90s when I was in high school, it was hard enough, you know, trying to fit in, trying to be, you know, it's 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 just it's the worst part of being a human being is that age between 14 and 18. Well, probably beyond that, but 14 to 18, where you're just, you know, you're you're all messed up. And now, right. I mean, I, so not only do our kids have to fit in at school, but now they come home and they have to fit in in the cyber world. Yeah. 
It's um, I I try to with both my kids. It's it's you know I just try to reinforce EQ, right? Like your emotional quotient. Like how in tune are you with who you are, what's happening in not in the world, like from world politics standpoint, but just like how people operate. Like what's what's your mindset? You know, because I think you know, kind of a, a theme here is just sort of you know the idea that the means have changed, but the problems have stayed the same. Like you said, you were awkward at a time when even your parents were like, "Oh my gosh, these this radio or what?" Like whatever, <laughs> whatever yeah. your parents were worried about. It's the same thing for you know kids. I think if it, I think the biggest hurdle though is just staying up to speed. Like I'm on the board of uh, an all girls STEM school. And, you know, and here's a school where it's science, technology, engineering and math. And it's, you know, it's the first school, first all girls public school in the state of California. And it's all the first public STEM school. And there's two big gaps I, I, I see. One is the parents don't really know what the kids are learning. Right. Because we didn't grow up learning about STEM. Like we learned it, but we didn't learn it as a practice. Right. Um, and and then two, like the way we connect and communicate, it's like, I was like, oh, did you know, I told one of the parents, like there's a monitoring device that you can put on your kid's phone um, where you can see every message they send and, you know, which apps they opened. And I can't tell you how many people who said no to that, right? Like just not knowing that there are bits and pieces out there that can help you be a do a better job at parenting without like interfering regular you know what i mean in a way that's like i need to go through your phone right so um so i think that that's that's where and on top of that yes the whole social angst i think the same same thing my daughter is worried about her hair she doesn't have any social media so and and she doesn't have a device um that's good that's yeah (laughs) that solves that problem well, one of my things was like, I, you know, I want to make sure you understand how to connect with people face to face and look them in the eye before you, you know, learn, get in the habit of doing it remotely. So uh, and it's like really at the end of the day, does a like a 12 or 13 year old need a phone? No, it's a con- it's a convenience in a lot of ways. And sure, she has to call me from the school office sometimes. But that's that's what I had to do. So, yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, a, a phrase I use as a as a parent is um you know, sometimes we forget. To, or sometimes we try so hard to give our kids what we didn't have that we forget to give them what we did have. Uh, it's not my quote, but it's just something I heard. Yeah, that's great. And, um, and it is like, you know what? Yeah, go to the office. Like, learn to ask permission to and for help at the same time. So during this interview, it's quite obvious that Chris is a great communicator, whether in the written format or verbal. He shares with us a key factor which has helped him master this skill. What, the one thing I try to do is put like framing things up in a context where people are familiar with, mm-hmm. right? So uh, even if it's like on the surface, it's, it's not their thing. You know, even in the first chapter of the book, I, it's like one of my favorite interviews. This is, is this guy named Dan Goods, who I keep saying guy, I keep referencing guys. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some women that have been on the show too. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> and some minorities. I'm inclusive. Um, <laughs> No, but it, I mean, he's NASA's artist in residence. You know, his title is visual strategist and he's been there for 15 years and he, you know, he 
helps turn their scientific concepts into art exhibitions. And, you know, for the average listeners, like, that is crazy, right? Like, even for me to this day, even having known him for a few years, I'm still, like, super impressed. Like, I fan out at his stuff. But then during our conversation, I go, you know, I, I said, the thing that you probably don't realize about yourself is that you're a marketer. You know, all you're doing is translating you know, a concept into something that's a little bit more widely, you know, recognized and, and inviting. So, you know, because if you listen to an engineer talk gobbledygook, you're like, okay, what? And then if I show you, you know, uh, an, an art exhibit that uses sound and you can participate in it, and you're like, oh, that's what the speed of sound means. It's the same thing if you, like, Principal Financial Group is one of you know my clients at OMD. It's like I have to translate into something that's a little bit more mainstream, so that people go like, "Oh, that's what that is." Now I want to sign up for it. And it happens like across so many different industries. So I think when you say like, "There's an obesity problem," and there's a problem with the overuse of technology, and there's there's problems like it's all sort of being attentive to. In the case of parenting, is like how how you. Um, what you're paying attention. Uh, sorry, what you're paying attention to as as a parent. Mm-hmm. You know, it, there's a lot to, that you have to like be mindful of, and it's easy to to, to slip and go like, ah, oh, you know, just uh, you know, I hate with, and I don't use the word hate a lot, but like, you know, you go to a restaurant and somebody hands their kid the iPad. They're oh not yeah, yeah. They're not. You know, they are learning to like be distracted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's okay. I mean, it's not okay, but <laughs> yeah, it's hard. And then you get kind of stuck in the same thing. Like you sit down in the John for 10 minutes and you're like, well, I need to read something. I need something. Yeah. <laughs> you know I mean? I'm guilty of sharp. Yeah. Like I, matter of fact, right before we got on this call, I, uh, I frequented the old restroom there and the I, restroom <laughs> office. my wife's like, why do you take 35 minutes? I'm like, do you hear the kids? <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. I had that very conversation. It was like, you know, you should have a time limit on how long you're in the bathroom. I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> okay, so we know Chris is a comedian, but he's also a martial artist. And being a martial artist myself, we have to go down the martial arts rabbit hole. Specifically, I was asking him about the similarities between standing up in a fight or standing up on stage and delivering comedy. Well, I think the most common part of it is punch lines. Ah. <laughs> wow. Stick with the martial arts. <laughs> See what I did there? Yeah. No, oh, yeah. Um, I mean, similar in what regard? Just as general practices? Or... Yeah, generally. Generally, do you see... Because I, I personally, I see a lot of similarities between the two. You know, if someone tells me they're a black belt in uh, uh, Gojiru Karate and they do stand up. I'm like, Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I see that. That that would be the case. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think you're right. It's like a, they're both individual sports, right? There's no, I mean, there's karate teams, but you're not all like on a court fighting. (laughs) Right. Right. That would be awesome though. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think we just invented a new sport. Yeah. yeah. Um, Shaolin soccer is a great movie. Um, which is a real movie by the way. So, um, uh, Oh, no, they're both individual sports. They're both things you really need to hone your craft at if you want to be good. I think there's stages of development in comedy. And and I don't mean from a content perspective. I mean from just like your personal development as an individual. The Like you I, you set the tone with this is like, can you stomach a punch? Right? Sure. Like, 
can you breathe your way through, uh, you know, a moment? I, I, and I, uh, I'll tell you a story at another point in time, but I, I got kicked in the stomach during a, a fight. And then when the, 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 um, we had to go to our corners and, uh, I like, I saved face the whole time we were still standing. Mm-hmm. And then, and then I got to the side, I was like, Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Um, which that happens on the stage, right? It's oh like, yeah. Like, oh God. It's yeah. Really awful, but uh-huh. I survived it. Right. So, um, there's so many different things and, and I, you know, I think the idea of being in flow, I think when you are hot on a stage, you know, it's just like, you can do no wrong. And I think same thing is whether you're in Kata or you're just meditating or you're actually doing something a little bit more aggressive, there's a flow to it. I mean, these tournaments that I used to participate in, it's like brackets, but it's not like a, you know, sweet 16 bracket where you get to do it over the course of a couple of months. It's like, no, one day, you know, if there's 32 people who signed up for this tournament, like if you win, you stick around and fight again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I think there's something to be said of just about like endurance and, all these different, all like so many different similarities, and and I, I, I'm glad that you bring it up because both of those things come up in the book, especially for the the journey of an innovator. It's the same, the, the same thing. Like this, this, and I think therein lies just sort of my, my thesis on these similarities and like putting constructs in in different in different envelopes or different veils, mm-hmm. so you could learn to look at them differently. And luckily, I've you know I've had this meandering life path where it's like oh uh, later as you know as i got older i was like oh this is so it's all the same yeah you know so um so yeah you can't uh, one of my big things is you can't fake it you know you can there's so many people out there that can kind of bullshit their way through a lot of stuff i mean even there's some forms of karate where you pay and i guess you'll get your black belt but when you go into competition and, and i'll guess we'll say comedy versus you know competitive uh, martial arts, you, you can't fake it because if you do, you're going to suffer. You know, you have to put the prep work in. You have to put the dedication in. Um, otherwise, it's just, you know, it's it's a bloodbath, literally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, no, it's something to be said about the, you know, the 10,000 hour rule, right? It's like, we, uh, That's right. a lot of people dabble. I mean, I've, I've, I mean, look, I had a, my best friend, he was in my, you know, my wedding of, I've uh, known him since I was sixth grade, in sixth grade, and w- I started doing martial arts in college. And I was like, "Hey, you want to come like work?" By this time, you know, I've been doing it for maybe a year or two, and you know, we were sparring. And I, it, one of the first things you learn, at least in the South, I learned is like control, right? You know, you the first thing you learn is control. Like you don't punch at full speed or kick at full speed, and you you learn how to pull back and you learn when to you know when to be a little bit more aggressive. And I was I was like, "Hey, you know." Slow down. <laughs> I just gave him a couple of warnings, and he would like he would tell you a story to this day. Shout out to Floyd Burton. Um, <laughs> he, he uh, yeah, so he would like he kept like feeling himself, I guess, to to put it lightly. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, don't kick me that hard again. And then he did it, and I I forgot what he'll you know I did like a spinning hook kick and floored him, and I was like, okay, now do you get the lesson? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. So, you know, but that's that's where the dabbler goes. I know everything. And this is exactly what we talked about with generational access to information and expertise. It's like, oh, I know enough. Yeah. Right? I, I can I can defend myself. I can go on stage. And but you can't. You're not. That's you're, right. you're by no means ready. We um, I went to probably my first. I mean, we saw Joe Rogan a couple months ago, but um, 
but it, that was entertaining. We went to this this local show just a couple nights ago. First time I'd been to a local comedy club in, gosh, it, it must have been 15 years, probably since the last time mm-hmm. I, I performed. And and I at the smell of the place, the look of the place, it, yeah. it, I was like, oh my god! It's like it was like it was like heroin being calling at it me. Is, it's a high. Yeah. I I came back home, and I I took out my comedy books. I still have them up in the attic, and my looking at my old jokes, and I started writing again. I, I haven't written comedy. I've written a lot of uh, science and and medical stuff for my blog, but I haven't written comedy forever. And uh, I forgot how how enjoyable it is like how taking a concept and and cutting it up and trying to figure out which angle you can come in from and 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 then working out so i might i might i might go back up on the stage we'll see i don't i don't think it's a might i think you just do it i you know <sighs> i um here's a here's a, so i'm an old man now though i'm not <laughs> uh, didn't i just tell you about colonel sanders oh yeah that's right um, <laughs> <laughs> oh shop those chicken recipes that's right um no, I started writing material again too because I haven't performed. Like I get, luckily I get to be silly on my show, but it's not stand up, right? And I think I have a a newfound relationship with it, I guess, as as I got older, or like kind of coming full circle. And I, you know, I have a, a a whole bunch of notes in my thing. And one of the one of my uh, I haven't performed yet. I tried to go to an open mic night, and they were. It was like a, I I felt like a ghost because they were like, "Oh, you're here for that? We haven't done that in four years." Oh no. Like, well, yeah um but it was i wanted to what was i saying um oh uh, because i travel a lot i was like oh i can go to some city if i go to chicago i don't know chicago that's too big of a stand-up town but if i oh yeah that's i go to some city i can go like hey is there an open mic night happening nearby so part of the the for me the personal risk is like the recognition and failing in front of people you know Right. I, got, right. Like, I don't mind failing in front of you if I have no idea who you are. Exactly. But if like your friends and family show up and you're like, ooh, that was bad, man. You okay? Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. I don't, I, don't, I don't need that. I made that mistake growing up. I was like, hey, you should come out to my, my open mic show. And then my friends would come out and I'd just eat a dick. And I'm like, well, <laughs> uh. <laughs> you know, it was, it's rough. And then your friends think you're not funny and you're like, you don't understand. Anyone, and, and I, don't, I don't mean it like that. I, I guess any personality can do stand up. If you put the time in, you put the writing in, you, you learn the timing, you, you can, it's a skill you can learn. You don't have to be a funny person. But then when you go up and you suck, they don't know that. And they just know, oh, yeah, Kevin's not a funny person. You're like, no, you just saw me in a bad show. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, um, it's, a, it's a really great documentary called uh, Dying for Laughs. Mm-hmm. Um, not to be confused with the show Dying Up Here, which is a Showtime series, but the, I've watched this documentary maybe two or three times. I have to watch it. And, it's it's amazing. I mean, it's like they go from the time that you're talking about, like, I think I'm funny. Let me go up and do this to, mm-hmm. you know, superstardom with everybody from Jamie Foxx to Kevin Hart to, um, I don't know, like it's a Joe, you mentioned Joe Rogan. He's in there. Like there's a, it's a good mix of individuals, but it's, I think it's the same journey for any career. Uh, you can be an accountant and suck on, you know, year one and fudge, like mess up some numbers and, get kicked out of, you know, get fired from the job. And if you stick with it, you can eventually have your own, you know, multi-million dollar accounting firm. Like it's, it's, it's this, again, I I guess I keep going back here, but it's that same sort of um, uh, construct of surviving the the downsides of of life or the the getting punched in the the gut. That's right. That's right. And learning from it. Yep. Well, Chris, I took a, a lot of your time here. I, I really, really appreciate the talk. Um, 
lot of interesting stuff. See, I, I was telling Eric, I was like, uh, he, he wanted some notes. I'm like, I can give you some notes, but I don't know if we'll get to anything on here. I hope that's yeah. that's all right. And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's no problem. It's, it's conversational. Uh, but those those always make the best shows. Um, yeah. Where can folks find you? Where, where do you want to drive drive people? Well, my address is one four. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's like, holy shit, he's really the, doing it. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, uh, no, so Densonology everywhere, uh, D-E-N-S-O-N-O-L-O-G-Y, the okay. study of one, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, the, the crush.co is where I kind of house most of my projects. You can find Innovation Crush there. You can see the book, um, some weird videos that I may or may not have been in. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's the easiest way to do it. And, um, yeah, uh, come one, come all, all Well, right. not all. All right, very cool, and uh, you've inspired me. I'll go, I'll go back up to an uh, to an open mic. Uh, the easiest thing you can do, yeah. Oh yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I can take but it it's anymore. It's hardest, and it's the easiest. Sure, sure. I think maturity plays a lot of role too, because you know when I was twenty one doing it, I got up there and I was like, man, I'm the funniest guy. I was in Boston. I did it in Boston. That was a, a that's like going to a. I don't know, Brazil to learn jujitsu. Uh, it was a tough town. It was, it was a tough town to learn comedy in. And, um, and you know, now I know I'm not funny. I just, <laughs> now I just know, Oh, I have to, I have to hone this craft. So I don't know, maybe it'll be better. Uh, I don't want to tell my wife though. Uh, I think that, I think that would be akin to honey. I think we should join Amway. I don't know. I think it would receive the same, the same, I don't know response or something like that, but okay. So, well, I just listen to your show either, which is uh, it's cool. As I, I can say anything, I'm like, yeah, I'm going, to, I'm going to the moon. Yeah, like, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. All right, Chris. Well, I again, I really appreciate your time. If it wasn't folks like you that just take time and and speak with us, independent, I guess you could call us journalists. I don't know what we are, independent entertainers and creators. It'd be nothing. So, um, very much uh, appreciated. I'll put the links to your book um, and all that on on the show notes. And uh, keep in touch. Thank you. Yes, and uh, thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, no problem. Take care. All right, folks, that's it. Thanks for checking out the Wait What If podcast. We have some cool shows coming up in the next few weeks. I have James Barrett, author of Our Final Invention. Uh, He was on last year or two years ago, something like that. This guy is one of the best minds out there about artificial intelligence and where our future is going with it. Kind of spooky and will probably scare the shit out of you, so I suggest take a listen. Also, we have Bonnie Mann, former women's boxing champion. She's now a motivational speaker, personal trainer, and all-around inspirational person. So thanks again for checking out the show. Go over to waitwhatif.com and check out chill bios, info, links, whatever. I put a bunch of stuff on there. And I think that's it. See you next time.